Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the New Books Network's South Asian Studies channel. I am your host, Madhuri, and today we are talking to Pankaj Seksarya about his book, Islands in Flux, the Andaman and Nicobar story. Islands in Flux came out with HarperCollins India in 2017, and Pankaj is an associate professor at the Center for Technology Alternatives for Rural Areas at the Indian Institute of Technology in Mumbai. He is also affiliated to the Center for Policy Studies and has been a longtime member of the Environment Action Group, Kalpavich. Welcome to the show, Pankaj. Hi, Madhuri. Thanks. So I have long wanted to feature Islands in Flux on the show and I'm so excited to talk about this book with you, which for our readers is a compilation of Pankaj's writings on key historical, political, legal, and social issues in the Andaman and Nicobar Islands. And it really, to me, served as a siren call for Indian mainlanders and all concerned folks everywhere else to pay more sustained attention to this fragile archipelago in the Indian Ocean. So excited to have you with us, Pankaj, to shed some more light on what is going on in the Andaman and Nicobar Islands. Now, you know, I begin by asking every author to take us through how this journey happened for you. So how did you get to the Andaman and Nicobar Islands as a site of engagement? I mean, you wear many hats, right? You're an academic, you've been a journalist, a photographer, an advocate. How did this, more than two decades now, right? How did this journey come together for you? Yeah, actually, it's been, uh, it's more than two decades, almost two and a half now. And looking back, it's always quite amazing to see how in some senses, time just flies. And on the other hand, uh, like I keep telling friends and students also that a a commitment and an effort at keeping an engagement going, either with a particular geography or a particular theme, uh, sometimes it seems a little tedious and sometimes we don't know where it's going. But when we look back many years later, like I'm doing now, I just see that uh, it has tremendous value both for myself and uh, and for the subject, it could be in the domain of activism broadly in this case or even otherwise. So it is actually quite amazing even when I think back of my own engagement and with every passing year, it kind of adds up. So that's kind of quite nice. So I went, I think, and I'm even, I think 93 or 94 is when I first went uh, to the islands. It was uh, in some senses a, a moment, I was finishing my engineering. I was studying in, in the city of Pune. And I had a kind of six months off because I hadn't 
cleared my last semester of engineering and I had uh, nothing to do for that half a year or a year. And by then, uh, I was like uh, mid-twenties roughly and I had already been very deeply engaged and interested in the environmental issues uh, in wildlife in particular because that's how I started off watching birds in the neighborhood that I grew up in Pune. And very soon as I was, you know, late teens and early 20s, got involved in the larger issues of uh, environment beyond wildlife. So two kind of important moments when I was uh, at that point in time were the Narmada Bachao movement, um, which most of us are aware of, was pretty much very active at that point of time. And the city of Pune, where I grew up, was uh, quite an important support group uh, for the movement itself. And one had the opportunity of participating in some of those uh, events and efforts at supporting the Narvada Bachao Andolan and the movement. So that had quite an impact. And then when I was class 11, I had this chance of participating in, I think, what was a very a fascinating effort at understanding the Western Ghats, which is where Pune is located. Uh, what was called the Paschim Ghat Bachao Yatra or the Save Western Ghats March, where a whole bunch of activists, uh, policymakers, sociologists, ecologists, journalists came together to assess the quality of the ecology and the status of uh, the communities in the Western Ghats. And they did a 100-day march uh, starting from two ends of the Western Ghats in the extreme south and in the extreme north. And they walked down for about 100 days to then meet for a kind of a conference in Goa. And I had an opportunity of actually as a class 11 student uh, to, to join this march for about 10 days, uh, not very far from Pune. And th there was nothing very radical in that experience or very traumatic, but it still had a huge impact because one saw firsthand what the challenges of uh, ecological degradation of life that was completely different from the kind of life that I was living, uh, what that really meant. And that had quite an impact. And I was quite clear then, by then, that I wanted to work at the intersection of the environment and communication. Writing, I was getting interested in photography and things like that. And then, well, I did my engineering and then I had, like I mentioned, uh, some time off between finishing and actually graduating. And I had this friend, a kind of mentor, who had even introduced me to bird watching and the environmental issues, who was incidentally in the Indian Navy and had a posting in Port Blair. And he said, if you're free and you have nothing to do, why don't you come and just kind of spend some time in Port Blair and in the islands? So I just kind of went off. It was a forced gap year of sorts and uh, many years ago. And I went there and I was quite kind of, uh, it was bewitching that place. I was completely smitten by the beauty of the place and the, and the kind of wildness in courts. And uh, since I was already interested in environmental issues, and my friend also was, we got in touch with a couple of local NGOs and a couple of individuals who were working on issues there. So apart and in addition to being just a traveler and enjoying the place, one also got a sense of what some of the challenges and what some of the issues were, including issues that Islands in Flux talks about primarily, uh, issues of ecological degradation of the tribal rights, of, of the rights of the indigenous people there, of uh, of the forest biodiversity of the coastal dimension in that place, uh, and then I was there for a couple of a couple of months, and uh, then came back, and then then kind of tried to structure uh, 
project or get some resources. And that's when I also started to associate with uh, Kalpavriksh. Because after I finished my engineering, then I moved to Delhi to do a master's in communication. This is where Kalpavriksh was based. Uh, so it was my studies in communication along with an engagement with Kalpavriksh started off. And then when I finished my master's, I went back to the islands for a much longer period on a, on a kind of investigative research project, which then became quite instrumental in uh, many of the things that uh, Islands in Flux kind of talks about, including interventions in the court, uh, policy advocacy at the national and state, local level governments, and a lot of media engagement and photography and things like that. So that's how it began. And then... Um, you know, many of these things just take a trajectory that is not really in your control. Uh, you get opportunities, you you cash on those opportunities. And primarily because we intervened in the, in the legal process through uh, public interest litigation, then that kind of had a momentum and a trajectory of its own where uh, submissions had to be made, we had to go to the next level, evidence had to be found. All those kinds of things happened and that then kind of just kept pushing the engagement uh, in, in different kinds of ways. So that, that, that's what uh, it was. And, and like you mentioned earlier, I've done a lot of photography. So I have kind of mounted an exhibition that's gone around to three or four places over the last couple of years, which is, uh, which is an exposition of the visual dimension of those islands. There's a novel that I wrote based in the islands about three or five years ago. And then there was uh, Islands in Flux, which is a compilation of my, primarily of my journalism on these islands over the last 20 years. Starting the first piece uh, in the book is an article on the Jaravas, uh, start, uh, published in 1998. So that in short really is the, is the story. Thank you so much uh, for sharing that. So I think most of our listeners will recall the international mayhem that ensued after a 26-year-old American evangelical missionary, John Allen Chow, was killed by residents of North Sentinel Island. So Pankaj, Sentinel Island is in the extreme south of the archipelago, am I right? No, so it is. It is a so the Andaman and Nicobar are, as the name suggests, in two parts. The Andamans is the northern part of that entire group, and the Nicobars is the southern part. So North Sentinel is kind of uh, southernmost and and as southwest of the Andaman group of islands. It's a isolated little island located far away from the from the main island chain. But the southernmost group, I mean, which has, uh, maybe we can discuss that later, is the Nicobar, which is which is very close to, the southernmost point there is very close to Sumatra, for instance. So it, it has a very interesting uh, history, but also geologically and other things, which we'll discuss later. But uh, yeah, so uh, it is south, southwest of the Andaman group of islands, not of the entire, uh, not of the entire group. Right. And, you know, I remember the media coverage sort of focused on several debates that were rekindled around human heritage, both in the Sentinel Islands, but also the larger conversation that has been intermittently happening around human heritage and, you know, these 
extremely vulnerable indigenous populations in the Andaman and Nicobar Islands as well. And, you know, reading your book too, there's sort of this two-pronged set of issues, right? The ecological aspect of, you know, the destruction that is coming from timber logging and infrastructure development and the expansion of the Indian military apparatus. And then there is, I mean, interlinked, of course, but the other dimension of just human heritage and cultural diversity and the extreme vulnerability of the indigenous population in the Andaman and Nicobar Islands. So just going off of that John Allen Chow incident, could you maybe begin to talk a little bit about you know the ecological aspect the human heritage aspect and you know how these periodic media outbursts around this set of issues i mean do you think they've helped they've harmed because it, there really seems to be a cycle to our collective attention right something like this happens we have the same set of conversations that I seem to recall even from a couple of years ago when these tourists filmed the Jarawa and that video circulated and there was all this, you know, anger, but, you know, here we are again. So what's really been the dynamic of this media attention that seems so intermittent and then these ongoing set of issues around ecological destruction and the vulnerable human heritage dimension. Right. So, I mean, um, see, the islands are an extremely uh, fascinating place at multiple levels. So, where the ecology is concerned, uh, like I, like most island systems, tropical island systems around the world, uh, these are extremely rich in terms of uh, the ecological diversity, um, the ecological richness, uh, which, which is expected in a tropical kind of system, both in terms of uh, the forest diversity. So you have this chain of roughly 550, you know, plus minus islands, big and small. So not a, not a very large uh, kind of island chain in that sense, but nevertheless, not small either. Uh, isolated, I mean, far away from any other reasonably far away from any other major landmass so uh, the classical process of evolution perhaps have played a very significant role over millennia here you have uh, very good uh, tropical forests you have uh, very high levels of endemism which is number of species of butterflies and birds and reptiles uh, and plants that are not found anywhere else on the planet uh, a very rich uh, and diverse coastline because it is sandy beaches, rocky beaches, cliffs, uh, and then, of course, a very, very rich uh, marine life, including uh, offshore coral reefs and very rich oceans that are pr- pristine, relatively speaking, with, uh, with diversity and perhaps abundance not even being studied. It's just beginning to kind of happen. And uh, in this context, in this in this ecological context, you have these human communities, broadly six, four in the Andamans and two in the Nicobars, uh, that have been here for, for thousands and thousands of years. We don't even know exactly. And that's kind of, uh, you know, the enigma about who these people are, where did they come from? 
how have they been here how have they survived etc which are questions both in history and in anthropology have been have been asked and are being asked and we don't have answers and while uh, while all these are very important and relevant i think the historical context the contemporary historical context which islands in flux really kind of concentrates on and I, and i don't really go back into history to a large measure or i'm certainly not an anthropologist one sees that uh, where these people are concerned like you mentioned uh, with an exception or two because there is a community in the nicobars that's perhaps integrated much better with the mainstream and the modern world one sees that uh, the history over the last 100 150 years primarily since uh, the settlement that the british created and certainly in the 70 odd years of india's independence uh these extremely small and like you said a couple of times vulnerable communities have become even more marginalized and vulnerable they have become uh so see in some senses and, and perhaps you know this better than i do being an you being an anthropologist is uh, communities that lived in uh, isolation uh, as from most of other human communities and lived uh, nomadic hunter gatherer lives have a certain rhythm and a certain logic to their lifestyles and to their existence and with this very huge and rapid coming in of the outside world as it were uh, they have just not been able to cope and if you look at uh, historical records if you look at what the british wrote at the turn of the century uh, you just uh, it's quite astounding the kind of impact this has had uh, with the huge coming in of disease with changing of habits with changing of food habits loss of forests which is the primary resource base for these communities and uh, the great andamanis you know from from a rough estimate of about 5000 in the middle 19th century that the british record to and and a set of about 10 communities 10 sub communities subsect sub texts a sub uh, sorry subsects they are now down to 50 individuals as a community uh the onge uh, in the island of little andaman Uh, which i write about a bit and, and that's where actually uh, an investigation that we did started off in some sense is the legal process it's also there in the whole story is there in islands in flux if you look at the statistics about 1901 census talks about 600 odd people today are the, today they're down to about 100 plus which is a very significant uh, fall in their numbers uh, within a century and it's not just fall of numbers it's also uh significant changes in their lifestyles in their relationships in their in the way they access food and habitat and stuff like that and the essence of the cultural changes that are taking place so uh and this is all negative so you know the question that's always asked is for activists like me would be oh how do we know that we're not doing a good job and you know why should communities be left as museum pieces uh and not be allowed to develop or get the benefits of what we get in modern civilization or modern society and while i mean that's true maybe maybe they would benefit but the evidence of history is very clear if you look at the great andamanese if you look at the onge if you look at you know similar indigenous cultures around the globe uh, there are very very few instances if any of them having actually benefited in any kind of way so the historical evidence is pretty pretty clear and uh, what we see including for example the the incident you mentioned with the uh, north sentinel what might happen when a isolated community is exposed to the whole set of pathogens or whole set of outside inputs 
uh, which again has is a lot of evidence from other places on the globe, uh, they, they, they're probably not going to survive if something goes wrong. And why do we need to uh, access those people? What is it that we seek to offer them? Whom are we thinking about? I mean, these ethical questions are also very, very important. And uh, I am in some senses an optimist because I, I work with people in Kalpuris who are very optimistic that communities and people and systems survive and, and there's a lot of innovation and hope. Uh, but at the same time, the stories from the Andamans do not suggest that things are very, very good where both ecology is concerned and where, they, where these, uh, these communities are concerned. What happened with Chao was very unfortunate. Any death of that kind is very unfortunate, but it was completely uh, unnecessary. I mean, uh, the, the context has to be understood. It's a very unique context. It's a very difficult situation. Uh, there are very big challenges for the state in kind of dealing with a situation like this. But there was absolutely no need for him to go there. And as a matter of fact, once the whole incident happened and there were these calls and attempts to retrieve the body, and uh, there was no way it could be done. And but But the administration, the local administration kept insisting that they have to get the body back what for we don't know i mean what what purpose would it serve so eventually you know a bunch of us six seven of us uh, researchers activists anthropologists who've been working in the islands together also for a very long time we had to issue a public brief public statement saying that we you know sincerely and earnestly request the administration to call off those efforts to retrieve the bodies because it's not going to the body sorry because it's not going to lead to anything much uh, it'll only increase tensions and any party that tries to land, what if the sentinels attack them again? So, but but following that kind of norm or that kind of system of uh, what we think is right or not being, a, being able to understand a very particular configuration of a human community, I think is is the big challenge. Right, and you know, so going off of how you ended, I'm. In reading your book, I was so struck by the gap between all these progressive legal decisions that were being taken by the Supreme Court in the mainland and the blatant disregard for these directives in the islands. And is that a pattern that you date to a relatively recent time or has this always been the case where you know the island administration is just going rogue or do you think that the political status quo in the islands has always been dominated by outsiders whose interests are just you know opposed to the maintenance of the ecological balance in the islands and they just don't care, have never cared about the indigenous peoples who they share the islands with. So I think um, I have been, at least I began being very surprised by how the administration is not willing to implement the court orders. Um, but I'm also realizing that I think as one grows older and one sees more, I think it's more complex than just them refusing because uh, I, I still don't know why why they would do that and what purpose to be served, except for the fact that uh, th th there is 
see the nature of the intervention the kind of intervention that we made is also very much an outsider's intervention and that is a constant this insider outsider debate and discourse and controversy is there all the time and we were very clearly perceived as or the orders were very clearly perceived as uh, not in the interests of the majority there which is the settler populations right and uh, part of the kind of both explicit and the implicit uh, logic is that for just you know few hundred people who have been here for thousands of years and who are kind of backward and who need to be civilized why should you know a couple of hundred thousand people be put to so much inconvenience is it not unfair to them and in that sense i think the uh, the majority uh, interest kind of prevailed uh, whether it was actively done through the political mobilization or it was even the belief of the administrative structure there that it is not fair that it should be done and it's not in the interest of the island so there is this bit of a uh, uh, how should i put it um conflict if one might say between what is needed and 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 what is and how do you uh, weigh the balance and weigh the value of uh, who gets to decide and in whose interest these uh, things should be having said that i think what i'm realizing more and more in a larger context is that the complexity of india's systems are much more uh, complex one of a better word than we kind of imagine and just to expect that uh, so on the one hand to expect that court orders will not be implemented is kind of uh, or, or to accept it is quite problematic but uh, it's also within the larger framework so if there is no larger uh, buy in from the majority of the people it seems it need not necessarily be the case that's on the one hand second i mean on the completely other side i also realize that uh, these are in some senses the uh, the pitfalls of a numbers democracy where just because you are larger number of people if you are able to get everything going your way then what happens to the uh, smaller number of people the, the more marginalized and that's where i think particularly in the case of indigenous communities adivasis tribals uh, and stuff like that is where constitutional guarantees become very important uh, so it it cannot just be based on a, a numbers or a democratic kind of uh, thing uh which is what we can which is the only thing we can invoke uh, in terms of the ethics of it and in terms of the rights of it and in terms of what the constitution says but it remains to me uh, a mystery as to why they did not implement those orders why they did not is very clear but how do they how are they able to gain the courage to kind of uh, violate supreme court orders they have their own logic uh, i must also say that they, they they there is a kind of there was an interesting uh, play around with language and words and and an issue of interpretation that was brought into play to say that uh, this is how we interpret the court order and uh, it does not necessarily mean that they have to be implemented in the way that the petitioners are asking that they be implemented right and speaking of settlers you know you talk about the the persistent flow of mainlanders migrating to the islands we can talk a little bit more about that demographic what part of india are they coming from is it primarily economic migration or is it also a case of chain migration where families are following 
you know, male members who have been in the islands for a while, how old are the settler populations? I mean, of course, you know, pre-independence, I imagine, but the different waves, how do they relate to one another? I was very curious about that intra-settler dynamic, so to speak, as well. So I am not studied that or looked at that as much in detail as some of the other dimensions but uh, it's it's actually a very fascinating uh, story by itself uh, both the pre-independence and then what's happening post-independence one thing that's very clear going back to what we were discussing earlier is that this has increased the marginalization of the indigenous communities it has increased the marginalization in terms of sheer numbers so like in Little Andaman, from a ratio of, say, one is to one, one outsider to one uh, Onge or one tribal about 40 years ago, today the ratio is one is to 120. So for every, uh, on that particular island, every uh, local person, every indigenous member of the indigenous community, the Onge, there are just so many more uh, people from the outside. So that certainly is is one dimension. But, uh, you know, uh, This is actually a story by itself, which in some senses is now being being studied and being discussed in much greater detail than has ever been. And when I say this, it's about the settlers and the outsiders, so to say. So, you know, broadly, uh, the islands, uh, it's a very, very broad categorization, but there are four categories of people that one identifies in the islands. One is the indigenous peoples. There is another community known as the local bonds which is a pre, what's called the pre-42 or the local bonds. It's a very interesting nomenclature itself. Then there is the, uh, the kind of migrants that came in the, uh, who were settled, the, the settlers, so to say. Uh, it, was a, it was a policy of the government of India uh, to settle primarily uh, refugees from what was East Pakistan. Uh, a lot of people came as part of uh, that effort to settle these islands. And then uh, the more recent one could consider them as uh, the more opportunistic economic uh, migrants. And each one of these communities has very interesting internal stories, internal faults, uh, and then the whole issue of their relationships with the outside. Uh, And like you said, the inter and intra kind of uh, relationships. Uh, There are... uh, There are people who came from uh, from Burma. There's a whole... uh, viable community now of the Karens who came again at the turn of the 20th century. They were brought in by the British. Uh, now they have a small community established in the northern part by themselves. Now there's a whole bunch of people of Adivasis who came from uh, what is now, you know, Jharkhand, Chhattisgarh, the Chotanakpur Plateau. Again, they came in the early part of the 20th century, brought in by the British as forest labor. Uh, they were recruited through the church in Ranchi. Uh, very interesting stories. Uh, so they are called the Ranchis as a matter of fact. So they have the a whole set of people and, and, a, and a very significant population. There's a whole set of people, for example, who came from the Malabar after the Mopla rebellion. This is uh, pre-independence. They have a very strong, vibrant community in some parts. There are the Bengalis who came from uh, former East Pakistan. Uh, there are a lot of Tamils who came. There's a small population of uh, Sri Lankan repatriates, Tamils, in the outcome of uh, the pact that was signed between uh, India and Sri Lanka many years ago. So it's a it's a kind of very interesting mix. And 
uh, you know, if you look at, say, the settlers uh, who, who came in, I think, 50s, 60s, uh, some of the most unfortunate people, you know, suffering because of uh, who were refugees themselves, were incentivized to go to these islands in the 60s and 70s, given huge incentives like 10 acres of free land to, to set lives, to set up lives anew. Uh, but it sounds very attractive today, but you know, 10 acres in a pristine, towering rainforest with trees, hardwoods that grow up to over 150 feet. One can only imagine what the challenges must have been. You know, completely, completely virgin lands in that sense, to be able to domesticate there and start lives anew. Must have been huge, must have been a huge effort, must have been huge challenges. But in some senses, I feel what happened uh, historically and looking at retrospectively is that one vulnerable community in some senses was set up against another vulnerable community because these lands were all occupied in their own ways by these indigenous communities. And there are lots of instances uh, in some of the other work that I have done and others have done, which document, for instance, the conflict incidents so many incidents of, uh, you know, violence and killing and murder, say, between the settlers and the Jarawa community, because the Jaravas were extremely aggressive and uh, hostile, if you want to call it call it that. And there are uh, instances after instances after instances where there are killings on both sides. So it was like the forest of the Jaravas and somebody came and brought somebody else and that led to that conflict. So, um, you know, it, it's it's very, uh, it's not one story. We end up looking at the islands primarily as a story of ecology and indigenous people. And in some senses, people like me have been responsible for that narrative. Uh, but uh, increasingly, uh, we realize that there are so many more stories uh, that are as interesting, as fascinating, and that need to be told. In speaking of more stories, the 2004 tsunami forms a big part of Islands in Flux too, and you, you know, really document how the destruction wrought by the tsunami was in many ways exacerbated right, by the rampant development that the administration sort of allowed and has been allowing uh, over the last several decades. And, you know, how you also talk about the disaster narrative being used to further militarize the islands. And I, you know, found how you couple those two narratives so interesting. So will you maybe give our listeners a flavor of those two conversations in the book? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, in some senses, this is the point that you've asked and the point I want to make is the key point I have kind of come to in the putting together of Islands in Flux and in the two years that have gone by since the book was published. And that is where uh, the idea of flux, which is in the title of the book, is actually very central to how I have started to look at the islands and the challenges of these islands. So before I get there, but you know, 2004 really marked uh, a very, very important moment. Uh, and in some senses, uh, now the if you look at international coverage and international interest and media interest, it's only with these recent uh, Chao incident in North Sentinel, that that kind of attention was drawn to the islands. Before that, it was in uh, in the tsunami because it was a it was an event of un, unimaginable proportions and, and size and, and magnitude. So what I have realized is that 
uh, when I was putting together this book, so you know, there's there's an earlier version of this book called Troubled Islands, which was published in 2003, which was also a collection of my published journalism between 1998 and 2003. So a much smaller collection. And then since then, I have continued to write, and I realized at one point of time, and I mentioned this in the forward, the editors, uh, the the authors forward to the book. Uh, that uh, you know, one thinks that one has written something and one has said what one has to say, and uh, the job is done. But you, when you're engaged with a with a with a issue and a geography for a longer period of time, you know in some senses uh, the historical trajectory of what's happening, and you suddenly see, or actually you see throughout, that there are many many issues, many concerns that. You have resolved in your own mind and in your own understanding, but and you have written about it and you have made your statement and you think it's done, but it just keeps coming back like a bad dream, for instance. Uh, so I just felt that some of those things that I have already spoken about, say in 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 two thousand seven or two thousand ten, and then it comes back again in two thousand sixteen, and you have to respond again in exactly the same way. So it might be useful to just bring it together. To offer it as one uh, as one space to go to, uh, to to be able to either put put across one's own narrative and understanding, or to challenge what somebody else might be saying that you don't agree with. Uh, so when I was uh, putting together this the, the new version of the book, uh, "Troubled Islands" seemed a very negative kind of uh, title to give the book. And what I realized in putting the book together and the the second version. And in my own engagement with the islands over the last fifteen years, uh, after the first edition of that book was published, was the idea of change and flux. And one saw that this was a place that was what was that was experiencing change and flux all the time in different kinds of ways. And actually, putting together the book also made me realize, and I've been uh, articulating that. As I present the book and in my larger uh, work in the islands, is what I am now calling, and you mentioned the vulnerability dimension earlier, is what I am trying to consider and call the the trijunction of fragility and vulnerability. So this place is very fragile. This place is very vulnerable, and there are three elements uh, that constitute this island system, but I think any other place, uh, which is the geological, the ecological, and the sociocultural. and all of these are uh, the primary constituents of the systems that we are part of and while i think this would apply across the board across systems across the globe i can see that very clearly in these islands that all these three elements are extremely fragile on the one hand also vulnerable but also in constant flux and nothing signifies this better than the 2004 earthquake and tsunami that you also just mentioned where an event of such magnitude 9.3 on the richter scale and what's important here is that which has been missed out by and large is that these islands are very much part of the ring of fire which is the you know the epicenter of all the big earthquakes and the volcanoes and uh, where the tsunamis have been triggered across the globe so it is not surprising that this place is so volatile geologically on an average the andaman and nicobar islands have an earthquake once a week and these are not necessarily small earthquakes they can they can be up to 7 on the richter scale and there have been smaller tsunamis in the last 10 15 years after 2004 
and 9.3 the december 2004 earthquake took place just just south of the nicobars which is why it had a huge impact over here now uh, what i'm realizing is that this fragility and vulnerability of these islands which is geological ecological which we've already discussed and the socio cultural my larger concern now is that increasingly even more than earlier in spite of we having so much information in spite of we having so much more experience this is just not showing up in any developmental planning any policy that is made for the islands and that's a really big concern you are sitting in an island system where you certainly will get an earthquake you never know when the next tsunami will come and you have the kind of developmental interventions that are being proposed including like uh, if if you registered in the book where the former president actually proposed proposed post the tsunami a 250 uh, megawatt nuclear power station now i am not able to understand what is this configuration of development of a certain aspirational superpower status of a military superpower that is not able to account for three of these very very important dimensions of both the volatility the fragility and the vulnerability and if we are going to go ahead the way that we are then my primary contention is that we are just increasing the vulnerability because the floods are going to come and if you know with the realities of climate change and an unpredictable climate system the storms the floods then the occasional earthquake because it's part of the system and an occasional tsunami because it's part of the system we are only increasing the vulnerability of this place so that really is the key thing that now i am putting across and what surprising in some in ways uh, particularly in the islands is when i spoken to people say the settler populations they seem to be completely unaware of the realities of the place that they are part of so going back quickly to you know the very beginning when you asked why is it so uh, that the islands are the way they are whether they don't care so it is a certain historical configuration of how the islands have come to be populated by the outsiders and a certain aspirational dimension that is played upon by uh, the state by the larger economy for example now promoting the islands as possibly the best tourism destination on the planet very beautiful etc etc which is true i mean it's, it's spectacularly beautiful uh, but do we know at what cost it will come do we know if we have the infrastructure and the capability to to create it to be able to deal with the challenges that will be thrown up leave alone you know uh, increasing the risk and the vulnerability so my hope is that and i think you kind of uh, mentioned that very nicely in the very beginning that these dimensions uh, at least we need to be aware we can't forget that this is the reality of the place the beauty and the superpower and the military is just one story in there and it's a small part of the story so as a matter of fact let me just finish by saying this i'm just working on a slightly updated version of islands in flux which should go to press very soon uh as i was doing the forward for the new edition there was a british filmmaker who actually sent me an email and i include that in the forward and it it says something to the effect that i came to the islands uh, sold on the story of this extremely beautiful place with great forests and some great diving and snorkeling and i happened to come across islands in flux and i now know what the story really is and in some sense it's very gratifying but uh, 
if the rea- if if the perception the reality is so different then there's a huge you know intermediate space that's a huge failure for all of us which is very very scary thank you for uh, that pankaj that was very somber but you know i want to end on a more optimistic and hopeful note and i think you know there is a moment in the book where you talk about attempts to overhaul the tribal administration right where there have been attempts to empower settler workers to you know who work on a daily basis with the indigenous communities and how there have been changes and they're trying to do things differently because i mean reading your book one of the main things you know i took away from and as someone who works on adivasi issues in mainland india i think the big difference that stood out for me with the andaman and nicobar islands was the advocacy issue right even i mean there are outsiders on the islands but even the ones who are advocating for the indigenous communities are outsiders so i worry about that representation issue right who are we looking for because it's not like the onge or the jarwa are holding press conferences right i mean in that sense adivasis from northeastern india or in jharkhand or chatisgarh or odisha are comparatively far more vocal and have a presence in our national consciousness so i find you know these small attempts to empower even the settler workers who are engaging with indigenous communities to develop more horizontal relationships as maybe the way to go forward and i don't know do you have any thoughts on that i mean this that was this was just me thinking out loud really no i think this is this is absolutely important and very central and uh... again you know the kind of work that say people like me have done has in that sense only been limited uh, we have failed in many ways to create conversations and engagements leave alone with the indigenous communities for various reasons because of their isolation and all that it was not possible it was not it was not to be done but you know you know even with the the settler communities who are the first say uh, line of line of interaction for good or worse with with these communities what are their aspirations uh, what do they think uh, what do they want i mean uh, so it's it's not going to be easy ever and one has to sometimes make a choice between whom you advocate for but uh, it it is needed because they are as much uh, stakeholders in that sense certainly more than somebody like me uh, so that needs to be done and i don't think there's enough effort being made on that uh, because of lack of resources lack of commitment lack of people all those kinds of things but uh, i think there are others who have kind of begun to do that a little bit more than uh, say i have or certainly uh, more than has been in the past uh, and one can hope that that will uh, that will be more and there will be a larger understanding so their stories told by them even the settlers at the same time so that's really micro but you know this larger kind of 
meta narrative of what the place really is how important like i just mentioned is uh, the geological dimension so so is it is it really something like um, an an odd administrator or a, somebody will say you know don't worry we had a tsunami a few years ago it's okay we can i mean one one hear stories like this you know local people being told by an odd bureaucrat or something of that kind or the tourism industry asking for more relaxation of the coastal regulation zone protection because they want to build closer to the coast because otherwise the business is not getting the kind of boost it requires now what is the cost of that on the one hand and of course those stories uh, what are the local people who do they want uh, there's, there's a lot of work that can be done and, and that needs to be done so there's no doubt about that so i guess what we really need to do is continue the public engagement and trying to understand sort of the ground level dynamics of what's going on in the islands instead of just buying into the tourism brochures and because i mean there really is that polarizing discourse right the andamans are very beautiful or the andamans are the home of these vulnerable communities who periodically get into these gnarly encounters with settler populations and i think perhaps we need to step back from that polarizing discourse and really broaden even our understanding and take into account climate change and all this geological change that is going on even as we are here debating you know micro issues absolutely absolutely and i mean i i feel that there's too much of the good story i mean because we are so involved and in in some senses we know that the story of the indigenous peoples and stuff like that so one feels that uh, you know uh, it's polarized but i feel the dominant narrative is that of the mainstream of uh, develop this place like a great tourism this thing and most people don't know the stories on the other side because if uh, my contention and my hope is that if somebody who developing tourism either as a tourism promoter or as a policy maker knows the reality of the place knows that this place has earthquakes so regularly knows that there is a serious water problem knows that there are serious infrastructure bottlenecks you will not talk the way that you are talking in terms of promotion of uh, of of the place at the moment right so that story needs to um needs to be made a lot more rounded by saying that i mean that is really a, a very small part of the reality and that's not happening i think this story needs a lot more traction a lot more visibility and when i say this story of course i don't mean what i'm writing but the larger concerns on uh, on some of what is happening and moving forward what are you working on you said you have a new edition of islands in flux in the pipeline yeah so it's uh, i mean it's it's a it's barely new in the sense that there are a few more recent articles that have been added and it's just kind of an updated version of the same thing but uh, between publishing and now you know there's a whole set of particularly this tourism related narrative that became very center stage uh also which is also in some senses indirectly related uh, came up in the uh, in the in the north sentinel issue so i had a bunch of articles that i had written in the last couple of years so i thought it would be useful to put it together so that that's happening uh, there is uh, i just might just mention there was this novel i mentioned to you earlier the last wave 
which is a story based in the islands, which also picks up a lot of these issues, uh, which uh, around the Jarawas, around the forests and stuff like that. Uh, there's a Kannada translation of that and I'm hoping to see if we can do more. It's a little old now, but it's a story of the islands that is not been, it's, it's the kind of a story that's not been told yet. So it's also kind of drawn some very interesting reactions, both in the islands and otherwise. And in addition to that, uh, uh, there is a new book on a completely different theme uh, that has just uh, just been out. Uh, this is based on my PhD work. Uh, this is a book called Instrumental Lives, an Intimate Biography of an Indian Laboratory. So this is in the academic field of science and technology studies, where I study uh, where I studied a number of laboratories, looking at innovation and looking at uh, research practices in nanotechnology in the Indian science and technology system. And this particular book, which has been published by uh, Rutledge and is out in UK now and Europe, we should be having an India edition very soon, is a monograph, which is like the title suggests, a biography of a laboratory that was involved in cutting edge instrument making in a very counterintuitive and in very kind of uh, unexpected ways of innovation. And... Uh, it's 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 a new work I'm involved in because of my PhD work of late, trying to understand stories of science and technology from inside the systems and not as critiques or polemics from outside uh, the system, and telling stories again of what happens inside laboratories and trying to understand what they are trying to do. So that's kind of a new that's a new book, and I'm doing some other research on those lines, and the other work that I've also become interested in which is trying to bring together my STS, which is broadly um, sociological, anthropological studies of science and technology with my earlier interest in ecology. I'm trying to see how I can bring the two together and just finished a study on citizen science in ecology in India. So the report should be out soon. So citizen science is kind of uh, broadly understood. The nomenclature has really taken off across the globe in many ways. And you see that in India as well in the last decade or so, uh, particularly in ecology, because I think that field lends itself to uh, citizens' participation because of both of the temporal and the spatial scales at which data is needed. Uh, so we've done a kind of uh, very reasonably comprehensive mapping of projects that are, that are calling themselves citizen science. So methodologically, we went by identifying those projects that self-identify as citizen science because there are questions on what citizen science means uh, but beginning there we have tried to uh, map out a uh, little quantitatively what they're doing and then putting together a narrative of what this whole thing is evolving uh, towards uh, in the country so who are the kind of people involved what are the kind of uh, issues involved what are the value systems coming into play etc so that that's quite interesting because it is a very promising field by itself, but to understand it at a second order level uh, should be interesting. And I'm hoping to take that for, uh, you know, further with other colleagues and students and, and stuff like that. And lastly, there is this just I must mention, there's a little book on uh, for children that should be coming out in a year, which I have just finished. Uh, it's a short story about a little boy and uh, his mother in the Andaman Islands, who is a sea turtle researcher. And it is a story of 
this boy going on a sea turtle expedition with his mother to see how turtles nest. So that's a short story that will come out as a children's book in about a year's time. I just, I'll be signing the contract with the publisher in about a week. I'm quite excited about that as well. Well, congratulations on all your different projects. And I hope we can uh, have you back on New Books Network to talk about instrumental lives. But for now, thank you so much for making the time. And we hope to have you back on here again soon. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been quite fascinating uh, to talk and think back. And, you know, it, it both refreshes and challenges one's own thoughts and, and ideas. And it's always nice to be talking about the islands as well. So thanks so much for this opportunity. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye.